What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today, we are joined by a magnificent guest. Uh, She is the co-host of the podcast, How Have You Not Seen? Caroline Thompson is in the Hit Factory today. Caroline, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited. We are thrilled, thrilled to have you. And you have brought a wonderful movie along with you um, when we first started chatting about uh, all of this and getting you on the show. Uh, I feel like this one was maybe on a short list and then it immediately became like, actually, no, let's just let's do that one. That one would be, oh, that's the one. Um, and we are talking today about the 1999 film, But I'm a Cheerleader, directed by Jamie Babbitt, starring Natasha Lyonne, Clea Duvall, and others. Um, and I know, Caroline, that you all have done this film on your program as well. You have done an episode of How Have You Not Seen? Uh, and so I'm curious what this movie means to you and why it's one that you have brought to us, why it is one in your mind that is worthy of uh, of another podcast episode. This is one for a very niche group of people. And by niche group of people, I pretty much just mean gay people this is like a (laughs) like a a very very famous very well-known very important film um but it kind of came out you know it was the very late 90s and it's an indie film so while it has been kind of circling like not quite cult status because like the queer community like all knows about it but also not quite cult status because it's not wide ranging enough it's one that i just like I always kind of feel the need to evangelize a little bit because it's just a film that everyone I know who's seen it is just like, Hey, that thing is great. And it is one of those things where whenever I talk to my LGBT friends about this film, everyone's like, Oh, yep. Seen it a hundred times. I love it. And then pretty much whenever I talk to like a quote unquote wider audience, they're like, I've never heard of it. What is that? When you (laughs) ask the straights, have you seen, but I'm a cheerleader. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I will, uh, uh, give up the game right away then and say that uh, yes, this uh, heterosexual man had never seen the film before, had heard of it actually though, because we uh, we had discussed it once before. Um, before we get too far into it, it is a 1999 film, uh, but it was released in theaters at its widest release in early 2000. So for a moment, there was a question of whether or not it even qualified for Hit Factory. Um, But we have a precedent. We've got what we call the slacker precedent on the show. Um, Richard Linklater's film, which came out or which was made in and released in the circuit in 1989, but saw wide release in 1990. Uh, So we had this one on the list as Hit Factory approved from a very, very early, early stage of this program. Excellent. (laughs) Can I ask, Caroline, when you first saw this movie? Um, So for me, it really was only a couple years ago. It was one that, like, it had been, like, on my list of films, like, to check out for forever. Like, honestly, probably since, like, college, film class, you know, whatever. Um, I first watched it. It was actually one of the very first quarantine films that I watched. Hmm. Um, so it's a relatively recent, like about about two years ago. Um, but it was just one of those films where once we all had all of that time um, staying at home at the beginning of COVID, it was just like, okay, like what's any film that's ever been on my list and just like tear mm. through it. So it's been about two years for me, I think. 
Yeah. Um, I also had never seen it. Uh, just, you know, doing my part here as a, as <laughs> ignorance on that front. But the, <laughs> but the thing that I was thinking about when we were watching it, um, was Heavenly Creatures, which I saw for the first time uh, also during the pandemic um, in these last couple years. And I definitely think there are, of course, differences between these two films, but we can get into this when we talk more about it. The thing that I really appreciated about both of them, outside from Melanie Linsky being in both of these movies, Linsky <laughs> um, Hive. Is, uh, is that like there seems to be in this film and in Heavenly Creatures... Um, not just an intentionality on uh, aesthetics and sort of what that's doing for the story and uh, and the political ideology of the film, but also really unconcerned with like trying to map to other films similar to it in its canon. I'm thinking specifically in this case of the teen comedy, right? Which you could argue this is in, like the Definitely. 10 things I hate about you and all that. But that this is very, um, this is a movie that's very unconcerned with sort of like checking all the boxes of like, you know, the, the, the equation of one of those movies, which I just found really refreshing outside of the other things that we'll talk about. Unfortunately, one of the things that you kind of just, you can't not discuss with this film is it was initially like pretty critically panned in its era, which like, even if you look now, like I have the IMDb up because like whenever I'm talking about a film, I pull up the IMDb just to have it like add quick access. And not that this really means anything, but the meta score from like Metacritic is like still a 39, like to this day, mm, which yeah. is insane to me on the one hand, because it's like, it is so unconcerned with a lot of that stuff that you're talking about. And I think it was kind of panned for a lot of that reason, even though like, if you watch it as just like, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie. Like I personally think it's, great like I think it's doing I think it's doing a lot more work than people give it credit for and it's just not falling into that like kind of standard generic genre trap um that a lot yes. of people expect from it so even though it is I think it's doing a lot of things very intentionally that people look at and go well that's not like that's not the thing quote unquote so it's mm. clearly bad Definitely. I had it in my mind that there was like a studio exec at one point that was like thinking about this movie and thinking that it would work because it was in this age of like, you know, a really substantial market for teen comedies. Right. And then this movie not being that uh, and it being the, you know, one of the reasons that um, it didn't get a ton of support and backing and, and marketing and that it was critically panned because like I could see this pitch kind of like going well right depending on how you package it to you know a boardroom um but but that the the actual sort of experience of the film um would be one that I think audiences might not have been expecting I'm just I didn't look at any of how this movie was marketed but I feel like even from like the movie posters that I saw online I was like I could see an audience thinking that they were getting a different kind of film than the one that they got, depending on how this was positioned. There's a documentary that came out, I want to say in like the early 2010s, uh, called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It may even be like a 2008, 2009 film. And oh, Jamie yeah. Babbitt actually features pretty heavily in it. Um, it. It's all about the MPAA and about rating systems and the ways that um, a couple of types of films 
receive uh, much more scrutiny than others. Namely, that if you're doing something that has any sort of sexuality or eroticism, um, straight sex uh, is is fine. It gets like a PG-13 or an R. If you have uh, any sort of same-sex encounters in your movie, uh, all of a sudden that NC-17 stamp gets like thrown on it. Um, and I think she had to... to cut a, quite a few moments from this movie uh to to get at that r rating so it could get a wider distribution mm-hmm. i mean even then i think even at the height of of things it was only in something like 115 theaters um still managed to, to turn a profit i think it was like 2.6 million dollars against a 1 million dollar budget but uh certainly like a, a small take and not not a huge film and and like carly said i think it is something to do with the kind of film that maybe people were expecting to see versus the one that actually was and what it was doing. And also, you know, the, the democratization of film criticism in like the 21st century has led to a lot of like really rough stuff, like our like screen rants and stuff like that, you know? Um, But it also has done a lot of great work as well in that the critical pool that evaluates films and sort of like canonizes things in the modern era is not as overwhelmingly cis straight white <laughs> as it as it used to be and thinking about what like a 90s critical audience would have thought about this movie that is very very queer um it's easy to see why this movie didn't resonate with those people definitely uh another thing that you know i i think may have generated some attention and I think is largely the reason why the film has the cast that it does, but also uh, the reason why maybe people were anticipating a different kind of movie uh, is the presence of, of Clea Duvall, who I love. I, I think Clea Duvall is fantastic. I think she's really, really good in this movie as well, um, but had already sort of like staked out a foothold in Hollywood as kind of a young rising star. You know, she was in the faculty just the year before this. Uh, She was also in Can't Hardly Wait. So there's kind of this presence of this character sort of, I think, signals to some people that there's a particular kind of mainstream teen movie that uh, that they had come to expect. But also, as I understand it, you know, Natasha Lyonne, Cleo Duvall, lifelong friends. She's also really good friends with Melanie Linsky and is a big reason why they were able to get Uh, get the performers that they did for this movie, Uh, including Julie Delpy shows up for a minute. And I was like so excited to see her. I I had no idea she was going to be in it. She was there for just like a a fleeting moment. And I was like, oh, this is this is great. This is really cool. I'm glad that she's here. The night before I watched this, I watched Before Sunset. And Uh. like I knew that Julie (laughs) Delpy was in this because I had seen it before. But like it was just so it was just so crazy to just see her as anyone not that's not Celine, um, especially after just watching that film the night before. Yeah. Yeah. I only know her as that. And so like when she Same. shows up for like the five minutes in this movie, I was like, oh, oh my God. Like for a minute, I was like, that has to be Julie Delpy, right? Like I, I, I'm not, this might be a mirage, but I think that's Julie <laughs> Delpy in this movie. No, it definitely is. It definitely <laughs> is. Um, Caroline, uh, before we uh, talk about anything else, would you mind giving us a very brief synopsis of this film of But I'm a Cheerleader so that people can uh, can know about it if they haven't seen it yet? Oh, definitely. And I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, <laughs> but the film centers around Megan, who is played by Natasha Lyonne. Um, she's a young, I believe she's, uh, I believe she's playing 17 in the film. Um, and as the title would suggest, she is a cheerleader. 
Um, and you know, she comes home one day to find that her friends, her parents and her boyfriend have all decided like this girl is gay. Like we have decided like this girl is a lesbian (laughs) and she shows up and RuPaul in what can really only be described as straight drag, um, shows up, um, (laughs) and he is, he is like a counselor at a place called true directions, which is, um, basically it is, it's conversion therapy. Um, and the film plays with what that means and what that looks like in, in ways that is very absurd and very comical. That's not really true to what conversion therapy is, but anyway, the family ships her off and she is surrounded by fellow gay teens for the first time. And basically going through this process of conversion therapy where she meets Graham, who's played by Clea Duvall. Um, and they begin a young romance, Um, and then eventually it ends up with Megan running away, Graham staying at the camp at the very end as Clea is, or as Clea Duvall playing Graham is quote unquote graduating from this program. Um, Megan shows back up and like confesses her love. She does so via the only way she knows how or the best way she knows how, which is through a cheer that she writes herself. And they uh, they they say to hell with it and they run off together and um, assumedly begin their new life together as girlfriend and girlfriend, probably. <laughs> but that is where the film ends. It's time for your first disclosure. Now, don't be intimidated. Why don't you start by telling us about the first time that you realized that you might be a lesbian? I'm not. Everyone just thinks I am. I shouldn't even be here. (laughs) That's a perfectly normal place to start. Why don't we discuss the issues in your intervention? Well, I'm a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I have pictures of women around. You think that's normal? Sure. Have you ever had a boyfriend? Yes. For two years, we've been going steady. I really love him. He's smart and popular. He's got the biggest dick I've never seen. Well, um, have you ever had sex with him? I'm a Christian. It's really easy to be a prude when you're not attracted to him, isn't it? He's very handsome. But does he make you hot? I mean, do you think of him at night when you... I'm not perverted. I get good grades. I go to church. I'm a cheerleader. I think I already mentioned that. I, I think that the, the casting here is is really rock solid, pretty perfect. Um, Natasha Lyonne and Cleo Duvall especially. Um, but I love seeing Melanie Linsky show up. Dante Basco is here as well. Oh, yes. Our, oh, our yes. friend Rufio, um, who, who didn't uh, do much uh, after after this and, and Hook that I know of. But I know he's had a, a fairly prolific career nonetheless. Um, Bud Court always great to see bud court show up as well as megan's dad and you know outside of the the sort of two main characters megan and graham here i think kathy moriarty does a fantastic job in this she's such a good and convincing villain and there's so much like delusion and projection in the way that she runs this it it, it reveals layers of herself and just how how kind of broken she is as a person and the ways that she's kind of defended and guarded against that stuff. Um, I, I think she just does a tremendous job in this as well. Yeah. And she, um, Kathy Moriarty 
on our show this year, and it would have just come out, I think, a week or two ago. We did a season wrap-up that we call The Scenies, which is our basically our Oscars, but just for the films that we did that year, which is like <laughs> kind of very silly. But like long story short, I ended up giving her my uh, best supporting actress Oscar or Sini rather um, <laughs> for the entire season because for that exact reason, I mean, she just is playing a lot of levels and a lot of different things. Cause it would be, it would be one thing for her to just play like a villain, you know, it'd be one thing for her to just play like the mean older teacher role, basically like she's just strict and mean, but the way she plays it just so borderline unhinged and just like always about to like kind of just fall apart at the seams but if she can just yell at these kids enough then like she'll she can keep herself together and it's just it's it's very impressive work yeah I I was so pleased to see her in this film um and one of the things I love about her performance is how much she's doing with her face like she has these moments where she's like delivering a line And she's doing it, you know, sort of even handedly, maybe under a bit of strain. Right. But then she's kind of like twitching at the corner of her mouth or like her eye is like raised in in like a sort of scant way or something like Yeah, She's just like doing all of this work with her face. And as you say, it like really communicates this kind of like desperation that's just simmering under the surface and oftentimes boils to the surface. Um, and she's like totally, totally intoxicating to watch. Like, despite the fact that she's like a horrid character, I like f- found myself just being totally uh, enthralled by her performance. And the thing that I really appreciate about not only her performance, but the way in which she m- melds sort of her physicality with the topical dressings of her character and the way that that feeds into the psychology of her character you know she's always perfectly painted in terms of like her makeup and her hair is perfectly coiffed she's always in this like very well-fitted suit and her legs are long and beautiful and and she's in heels and that like adds to this desperation right she she seems so out of time and so out of place we're, we see that the things that she believes in, she already kind of knows to be false to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And yet here she is sort of espousing all of these, you know, insane things, yelling through a megaphone. And yeah, it just it just really, I think it melds beautifully with the physicality and the aesthetics of her of her character to really skewer this certain perspective that she has she's a horrible person like this character is a terrible person but like kathy moriarty is so much fun to watch and it is this thing that i think the film really nails and i think her performance one does a lot of work to this end but also is a microcosm of this as well when you say like we're doing like a campy teen comedy about conversion therapy it's like like a lot of red flags start going off. It's like, there's really nothing <laughs> funny about conversion therapy. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's this thing that it's this really delicate, like it's this really delicate balance they have to strike. And they kind of do so by not being delicate with it at all. And it's yes. like, there's really nothing funny about conversion therapy. There just truly isn't. It is anybody who looks into, you know, how these things go down. Like it is horribly traumatic for pretty much everybody who's ever gone through it. And 
it leads to mental illness and worse for like the rest of people's lives. So conversion therapy in itself is very not funny. That having been said, the worldview that somebody has to have in order to like think that that would work or think that that's something that should even be attempted is so just for lack of a better word, batshit. And like yeah. they play yeah. like you said, you said the perfect word, which is the same exact word I have in my notes. It's just the absurdity of it that it's like, it's, it's not poking fun at like, ha ha ha. Isn't it so strange that like, when some kids are gay, like some parents send them off to conversion therapy, like, isn't that silly and funny? It's like, no, the comedy is coming from like, how just fundamentally insane people have to be to run that and to create that and to build that. And um, yeah, and I think Kathy Moriarty, like, I think she one like really hones in on that fact and like, really like gets her performance in that sweet spot to play that perfectly. And also I think so much, I mean, the art design of this film is doing a lot of work to that end too, but also her performance is, God, if not, if not 40 or 50% of that work, like at least, at least 25 to 30% of this film is coming straight from her (laughs) performance. Yeah. Completely. I love that she has a a very gay son named Rock uh, that I like to uh, imagine was like, you know, her delusionally being like, we're going to name him after my favorite manly man, classic Hollywood star. You brought something up that I wanted to ask you about actually, Caroline, which is the idea of comedy having sort of any place um, or being proximate at all to conversion therapy. Um, And I think you nailed it when you said, you know, that the comedy is not coming from the therapy. It's coming from sort of like the absurdity of the worldview necessary to believe that that is uh, one, something that we should do and two, effective. But I wonder what your thoughts are on the trappings of, of this being sort of, in a darkly comedic uh, dressing, if that, um, if you feel like that falls flat in any way, or, or if um, it's an effective way to sort of comment on this thing that is very real and very traumatic that many people have had to go through against their will. I have but one opinion on that issue you know like i that is one of those with with any form of satire it's like there's always that discussion of like Mm -hmm. well if we make fun of it is that just like deflating it like is that making it look like it isn't a problem but it's like also if you only take things super seriously like it always has that power over you like it is that question you know it's like the the extreme example of this too is like people talk about like satire about like Nazis and satire about the Holocaust and Mm -hmm. satire about like far right anything. And it's that thing of saying you can't make fun of it feels like, uh uh-oh, like that is, you know, these are, it is cathartic to laugh at trauma sometimes. Mm -hmm. It is cathartic for populations to look at horrible things in our history and be able to kind of, you know, take the piss out of them, so to speak, by like lampooning them at the same time, reducing those things to a joke can also be, it can be both insensitive and it can be both read as insensitive. So I think in this example, I think it is really, I love it. Um, And like, I will say, I have, I am not a person who has ever been subjected to conversion therapy. Um, (laughs) The fact that I have to say, like, 
the fact that my knee jerk is to say like, I'm really lucky is terrifying and horrible in its own right. Mm -hmm. But that being said, like, you know, I grew up in a time, I grew up in a family where like that was never even an idea, never even a thought. Um, So like, I think it is important to be able to say, and because this film feels very validating from like a queer perspective. And like, you know, I talk about this with all the queer people I know who've seen this film. And like, I have now watched this movie, I think three times with my partner. Like we've watched it together, I think three times in the last two years, because we watched it in the beginning of quarantine. We watched it when I was doing it for my podcast. And then we watched Mm. it again last night for this. And it's Mm -hmm. this thing where we just talk about how like lovely and enjoyable and just like beautiful this film is in a lot of like really small and minute ways. And I think that the ability to laugh at this scenario, kind of like we were talking about where it's like, we're not laughing at the fact that these kids are here. We're laughing at like the institution of it. Yes. I think is a particularly like smart and like decent way to go about doing this. And the other thing too, is on the other side of this coin, like we have this conversation in the queer community. I know it is a conversation in a lot of marginalized communities about like, when we talk about our experience, like, we can't just focus on the trauma. You know what I mean? And it is that Mm -hmm. it's that problem with quote unquote, with representation that like a lot of communities are talking about right now, where it's not a problem to have a satire like this movie. And it's not a problem to have films that do focus on trauma. It is a problem when like all of our experiences, because there are so few films and stories about them that like, we can only name five and they're all the same thing. Right. And it's like <laughs> right. it's if there were if there yeah. were a thousand films being made every year about the queer experience, if twenty of them were just straight up trauma narratives and nine hundred and eighty of them were totally different things, like the trauma narrative would be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, given proper, you know, content warnings and all that. It's the fact that like there's like six mainstream films made every year about the queer experience, and two of them are romantic comedies and four of them are trauma stories. Right. right. So, I mean, because the film that, like, I thought about a lot when thinking about this film is, I want to say it was a 2017 film. It was Boy Erased. Oh, yeah. Um, There there were two of these kinds of movies in the same year. There was Boy Erased, the Joel Edgerton movie, and then another one with Chloe Grace Moritz called The Miseducation of Cameron Post. And both of them are, like, very intense, like, serious, like, capital S serious, like, conversion therapy movies. And that is an interesting counterpoint to this film because it is just the darkest, dreariest, saddest film. And I don't believe that Joel Edgerton is queer. I could be wrong. I don't actually know, but I don't believe he is, but I know that it is based off of like an actual published memoir by a real person who went through it. Like it is his, like the story of his youth. So it's like, on the one hand, it's like, who are we to say like, you can't tell like this story, like that's too much. That's too intense. Like it's only focusing on the trauma when like, that's what he wanted to focus on. Um, But it is that thing where when I watched that film, the only thing I really got out of it is like, that must've really sucked. Like that must've really (laughs) fucking sucked. And also just like, we as a society have a long way to go. Um, Whereas like when I watch a film like this, there's a lot of minutia in here that like I watch and I'm just like, 
I feel that like, like that right there, it's a, it's a three second shot. And like, that's so true. You know what I mean? Um, you know, having as many diverse pieces about it as we can is ultimately going to be better than like that question of like, is this the right way to go about it? One of the other things, and you know, of course, coming from the perspective of like a, a, a heterosexual uh, audience member here that I appreciated about the satirical kind of bent to this, to the comedy element of it, beyond just what we've already said and emphasized here, that is that it it's really sort of poking and prodding at the absurdity of the premise of conversion therapy and not laughing at the people who are participating in it. Um, is that that like that satirical kind of quality that 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 humor to me emulated and felt much more authentic to a young experience you know like i think a lot of these movies you know that deal with it and and sort of tell these trauma stories are 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 necessary and good but i think that a lot of it comes with like a sense of like reflection a lot of it is retrospective right like how how awful Definitely. this experience was um at, to the detriment i think of maybe you know those those moments of of light in darkness uh, but what this movie does that I find really fascinating is it it kind of reminded me of that feeling of being that age, you know, being in like my teens where these kids are in a horrible, awful situation, but they're largely insulated from like the recognition day in and day out of just how awful it is, you know, like they're they're just focused on the responsibilities of the day, of the interactions, of what they're being told to do, of, you know, trying to, to you know, maybe get off and, and sneak around a little bit and be rebellious. On the assignments. Yes. As one is as it, a child. Exactly. Um, until the consequences, until like the reality starts to kind of like puncture that sort of uh, manufactured manifested reality you know like I, I and i've caught myself too being taken aback more by the reality of the situation coming to the forefront in certain moments uh that much more because of it you know like those moments where they're having fun they're sneaking out they're they're having sex you know they're 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 being rebellious they're they're breaking the rules and then all of a sudden there's that conversation where it's like not only are you expelled from the camp but you have nowhere to go there's right. no safety net for you. Your parents have have abandoned you. That sense, all of a sudden, kind of breaking into the surreality of it is the thing that really, really got to me and made it feel more affecting than if I was sort of being bludgeoned with that kind of consi consideration all the time. Yeah, I think that's 100% true because there is so much good humor that the kids find in it. Um but yeah, I do think that having that as the counterpoint to the more dramatic, the more intense stuff does make those things land harder. And like, on the one hand, maybe in a film like Your Boy Erased, it's like, okay, maybe those lows feel lower, sure. But the drop from the low to the high certainly does not feel as far. There are there are a couple of moments, um, one in particular at the end of the film when I'm going to forget his name, um, he was one of the um, the gay male characters, uh, the one who didn't pass, um, didn't make Andre, graduation. I think, yeah, yes, Andre, mm -hmm. Andre. Um, there's an exchange when Joel, another character in the camp, is trying to comfort him um, because he he was the one that didn't uh, make graduation, and. You know, he's a character who is sort of like cartoonishly flamboyant in a lot of scenes. 
um, and uh, and and plays it thusly. And in this exchange, he's still being Andre, but he also has this really incredible line where he's basically like, I don't want someone who's just, you know, graduated into being straight telling me what's special about me when you're sitting here lying like I'm butchering this but but that's ostensibly what he says and then he basically says I'm leaving you all are liars and it's this really earnest moment um and very real moment from a character who in a lot of other scenes you know is is meant for laughs or or comic relief in in many ways and I just loved it. It was like, again, like, as you said, it was like a three second line and then he's off and, and he's gone, but it just, it totally hit me. And I thought it was like expertly done and just such a beautiful flourish. It's very clear that if not all, like a large portion of this creative team is queer and like Mm -hmm. understands these experiences. Like there's obviously the big conversation going around right now where it's just like, well, like, can non-queer people play queer characters? Like, is that okay? And I think, you know, talking about trans characters, I think that's pretty much a a no-go, a non-starter. Like, Mm -hmm. should not be played by cis people. But, like, it is that thing where it's, like, that conversation, especially in the more discoursey parts of the web, has been, you know, brought up. It's just like, well, should straight people play gay characters? Like, is that okay? And I'm not a hard no on that. Like, I'm not like, no, straight people can never play gay characters. But it is just that thing where it's like having that oversight and having that, like, all of this experience, like, informing how this movie works, it makes it so little moments like that pop. You know, it's like there's a thing where a lot of straight people, when they're playing gay characters, their thing is just like, well, this is just like, you know, this is a normal person. They just like boys. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to play this just like me because like, you know, like we're not stereotyping here. I'm playing this just like me, but like my lover is a boy. If the character, if the actor is a boy or like my lover is a girl, if the character is a girl. And it's like this thing where it's like fundamentally like, yes, that is true. And, like, I would love to be in a world where people could access those, like, emotions and those experiences, like, Mm. that deeply and really, authentically, I guess is probably a better word than really. But but it's just that thing where it's, like, like, politically speaking, I'm, like, yes, like, we should strive for a world where that is possible. But on the other hand, there are just all of those moments like that where it's just, like, having this film being very purposefully and very, like, earnestly queer Mm. allows moments like that to land in a way that it just wouldn't in other ways because it would be very possible for Andre to just play that moment as mad you know yes there could be that thing where it's just like you got the thing I wanted and like I was denied it so like screw you but it is also just this thing of like you even existing and you even telling me that is like invalidating to my identity and it's like who I am as a person in a way that like you can't really describe, yes. you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I love that you bring up that moment because there's so many of those throughout the film and just like the way characters look at each other or the way that they like retort back at each other just has that little additional edge, just like mm-hmm. that little extra like spin on it that just, you just kind of can't manufacture. Every time they have a conversation about their roots, I'm, I'm, I was always like, so, heartbroken by it because there's this desperation 
to just like find a thing, right? And the ground is always moving beneath them because Kathy Moriarty's character is, you know, one day she's like, yeah, that's a great route. And then other day, other days she's like, no, that's weird. That's like what everyone does or whatever. Like she's making it up as she goes along clearly, but, but the kids want so badly to find their reason for like why things are the way that they are. Um, And, and when they find it, they, they are excited and they feel like, okay, I've got this under control. Like I'm moving forward. I'm progressing. This thing is now manageable. I can now like understand and contain this. It's a discrete, knowable thing. Um, And it really is heartbreaking. It's a, it's a beautiful little like narrative device that does a ton of work. Yeah. And it is that thing too, that it, it's this thing that goes on several times through the film. And one thing that I really like about it is like what you're talking about where it's like the adults, like especially Kathy Moriarty are like, well, you have to like come up with this reason and you have to like figure this out. And like, if you just trust in this program, like we'll quote unquote, like fix you, like you'll be quote unquote normal, like all of that stuff. It's a thing that it comes up really twice specifically with Megan in the beginning. And then I think her name is Jan. Um, yeah. And then Jan towards the mm-hmm. end, who is, mm-hmm. you know, she's the the one who looks super butch, who has like the, the, the shaved, just like super cropped mohawk looking haircut. Yes. Um, and it's just like this thing that like, it starts with um, Megan where it's like, she gets there the first day and they're like, you have to admit to us you're a homosexual. And she's like, but I'm not. And it's like, see, you can't even admit it. Like you must like, see, you must be gay because like, you can't even admit that you're gay. <laughs> and it's this thing that like, I think a lot of young queer people deal with too, is just like when the world around you is like telling you that like you're something that you either are or are not. But like when the world is telling you that you are something that like, you know, you're supposed to deny it's like in denying it to other people, like you don't even get a chance to even explore that for yourself. And it's like, before you even start having any of those feelings, you have to deny to other people that it's the truth. Mm. And so therefore you don't even, it's not even that you're denying it to yourself because you're not Mm. even denying it because you've never even let your mind go there. Mm. And Mm -hmm. It's, it is just that like manipulative, like moving that goalpost that you're kind of talking about with Kathy Moriarty's character that is just like, I mean, it's it's very true and it's very terrible. And like, I've talked to a lot of queer people who say like, I didn't come out until like, especially like, like folks like around my age, because nowadays I am so happy for the youth and we've still got a long way to go. But, you know, you look around and like young children are like, expressing their genders the way they want to. They're like more open to being like, it's something like less than 50% of Gen Z currently identifies as like straight and cis. It's like over 50% of them identify in some way, shape or form as queer, which is incredible. And like, not the way it was probably when we were teenagers, Um, certainly not the way it was, but it's just that thing where um, because those adults around you and even your peers are like telling you from day one, like you're this thing. And it's like, no, I'm not. It's like, you don't even allow your mind to go there. And I've talked to a lot of queer people our age who say like, I didn't even come out until my twenties because like, and one of the many reasons is because from such a young age, people were just telling me that I was, and I just had Mm -hmm. to say no, like, yeah, before I even like, before you even hit puberty, like people are like, saying you're gay for doing this or saying you're gay for doing that. It's like, no, I'm not gay. See, like, I'm not gay. So 
Mm. before those feelings even really kick in for a lot of folks like you are denying it and it's just another level of control that they're putting over these kids i want to talk a little bit further about this because the the whole concept of uh of the root right in this in this movie is one that i uh found fascinating in its sort of dissection of heteronormativity versus you know like things that are supposed tells of like your your identity as a homosexual and you know they they play this up for comedy at the beginning of the film because when they send Megan away to camp the the sort of reasoning that they give is that she's a vegetarian and she listens to Melissa Etheridge you know (laughs) which is which is very funny you know like they don't have any actual like uh, proof yet you know like she hasn't been caught in any sort of like uh, sexual act with a woman or anything, but but they all just have these like presumptions where it's like you don't like kissing the the quarterback and and you know you listen who's to clearly a terrible kisser who's clearly for a the record like <laughs> and that scene is very very funny you know like she's almost sort of like cross eyed like mouth oh, yeah, agape it's and it's really really funny but you know when when they get to the camp they're all taught to find this root right find the thing that made them gay. And many of them, you know, have this sort of explanation and this rationalization. Again, another fascinating moment where uh, Kathy Moriarty's character gets to kind of project her own presumptions about gender and, and uh, you know, heteronormative scriptures on people uh, where Josh or Joel, whatever that character's name is, I, I think we've said both on the show, but... Um, <laughs> He says, you know, like, oh, I went swimming with all the boys at camp and then we changed and she won't permit that to be his route. She says, that's what everyone does after they swim. Everyone goes and changes together. That can't be it. You're not searching deep enough, you know. Um, But Megan's is fascinating because the explanation she comes up with is that her mother for a moment in their household was the breadwinner. And that her father lost his job for the better part of a year and was uh, not working and was emasculated by this. And it's just this like really fascinating moment in a family therapy where you realize that like even the like the straight folk can't keep up with their own prescriptions for like their gender roles and for heteronormativity you know like they're failing at it too um and and you you just see the artifice of it how how constructed it all is yeah well and if you don't mind me switching gears a little bit that lets me that is the perfect segue into a thing about this movie that i just can't get enough of which is like the design of it Mm -hmm. because exactly what you're talking about like how constructed it is um it is that thing that like my biggest takeaway is in every room and wherever they are, everything is like, not only is it the same color, it is like the same type of paint, you know, it's like (laughs) every single piece in the room is like the same finish. Um, And, and it is all like designed from the top down to like all go together. And just like it, it hits that construction thing that you're talking about where it's like, it's so hyper symbolically constructed like their whole like both their worldview and like their ethos but also just like the space they have to occupy in order to feel comfortable enough like you know in order to feel comfortable enough forcing this onto children there's the there's the room where they're like doing makeup i think it is like the girls and it's like every single product is just like 
the same color paint and it's like it's like if one little thing is out of line like it's just not gonna work yes and it's like (laughs) clearly like that's not how like human psychology works like obviously like it doesn't matter where you are if you you know traumatize a kid enough they're gonna start believing what you tell them but it is that thing where it's like it's almost that tell that for these characters like for kathy moriarty and like rupaul's character and the people who are running this place it's like no if even one detail like doesn't go together if like if our perfect straight like cis heteronormative world isn't like to a t perfect down to like the color of like the makeup brush like this whole thing is going to fucking collapse yes you see what what a house of cards it is like every every moment of the way exactly and a thing that i love too is along the same thing there's the moment where i forget the exact name of the lesson but it's like it's like we have to make you feel comfortable with like the way that like both of the genders are and like how they work together and they're doing the slideshow and she's like, click and look at the happy couple. And not only is the happy couple, like 20 different images, like cut and pasted together to be like as perfect (laughs) as possible in a way that's just like horrifying because like the woman's head is too big for her body and like her and the man are clearly like painted (laughs) by different people and all that stuff. But not only that, but it's also, they're all clippings from advertisements Mm -hmm. yes which i just think is like such a perfect touch because it is that thing of like this movie doesn't talk about economics all that much other than that bit with like like well my my dad was out of work and it's like oh see like you know like that moment that you're talking about but it is just like that nod to just like the way that like gender and like sexuality is also tied in with like capitalism mm-hmm. yes um and yep. the the film doesn't take a lot of time doing that but it is just like that it's just one of those things where it's like it throws that card down on the table and you're like say no more like i'm right there with you like i got it completely and caroline we're like we're now hunting dogs searching for the scent of any sort of like anti-capitalist moments in movies <laughs> yes, like that's just yes. what this show does so like when we saw that moment I, we both started like scribbling down notes like okay we have yes. to talk about this um because you're so right you know like the the way in which gender constructs and heteronormativity all come from like this socialized capitalistic drive right like we the the way that like a a nuclear family is designed you know our 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 working schedule the the how many people we have in our families all of that is constructed by like a capitalist class to make us the most productive workers in a society that they can extract from right and homosexuality uh in some cases you know bears some sort of threat to these people because it it in their minds means that they can't reproduce biologically right like all of a sudden you're you're uh chipping away at the workforce in so to speak and you know there's so much of that going on just under the surface and in those moments especially where there's just like the collaged advertisements and the the conversation around how uh megan is gay because her dad lost his job like it's it's so so good (laughs) And, and the other thing too, is like, again, they, they make very brief mention of it, but Graham's parents are like, we are spending a lot of money for you to be here. Yes. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, I think, you know, it's, it's very like capitalist realism that we have in this country. It's not necessarily that like, all of these people are in the mindset of like, well, if my daughter's gay, then capitalism fails. You know what I mean? Like they're not like cogently (laughs) thinking that. But it is that thing of just like, 
they know nothing else. And it's like, it is a business to these people. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's just, we're spending so much money to send you here. And it's just like, yes, like that is just like a cost of like how to, how to make their family normal. And that's just like a thing you have to do. And it's just like, again, it's just, it's one line in there, but it's enough to just be like, I see you like Jamie, I see you. I see what you're doing. Yes. And it just reminds you all the time how like, reproduction and children are viewed in a capitalistic society as like a return on investment, right? That it's like, we, we put energy and effort into this thing so that it will take care of us when we get too old to take care of ourselves so that it will make its own money so that it will produce its own, uh, goods and services and things in our society. Like it's, it's all about this like extractive quality. And it's just like, it's so fucked up when you stop to think about it for a moment, just objectively. Yeah. And and correct me if I get these labels wrong, but just like it's so nice to to meet some fellow commies on fucking film <laughs> film podcast. We are the right there podcaster. with you, Caroline. This is like this is like what we spend most of our time uh, looking for and talking about. And frankly, one of the reasons we chose the era of the '90s to focus on because there right. is so much about neoliberal capitalism in this decade that shows up in media that like is is undeniably hegemonic in a way that that once you start to see it you're like oh my god like we were this is just being fed down our throats every single day and and informs so much of like our our perspective these days it's um it's a fascinating decade for that reason. I'm yeah. really, really glad you brought up the capitalist realism. That was something I wanted to touch on because there's this idea of the nuclear family sort of upholding the churn of capitalism uh, in the 90s. But then there is also this idea that for these people, this world has to be this way, as you said, because they do not understand that any other alternative exists. And they would sooner uh, excommunicate or, you know, see their children dead than imagine an alternative reality. And that is that is capitalist realism to a T. You know, we would yeah. we would sooner imagine our own death than than imagine the end of capitalism. And so this these scriptures that are upholding their worldview are at a certain point a matter of life and death, right? Like that sounds a bit extreme, but if you take it to its logical endpoint, that's that's what all of these people are grappling with, particularly the adults and definitely Kathy Moriarty's character, who is just like at every turn holding up the walls around her, presumably because she already knows or has felt in some way the like complete destruction of her world and cannot bear it. So must like reconstruct and and desperately cling to this this ideology that she has every single day with the sort of like period dressings of the film I think that's also really important Mm -hmm. like yes there is when they're sort of out in the the world before they get to the conversion camp everything is brown but everything also feels really dated and then we get into the camp and it feels even more dated which is purposeful Mm -hmm. but it's all sort of giving this like sense of a mid-century 50s 60s like suburbia that in the 90s by 1999 and certainly by now that place no longer exists for all intents and purposes 
and the perspectives that upheld those places and economic pipelines that upheld those places have certainly all collapsed. Like Mm -hmm. those things are no longer viable. And, and the aesthetics of this film totally call that out to us by showing us how fake it all is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful touch. No, I'm so glad you said that. And I wish, I wish the audience listening could just see me smiling and nodding with you because like, <laughs> I have, I have so much of that too, um, like down in my notes. And it is this thing of like, especially in her house at the beginning, like the overabundance of decor yes. that's in it is it's like it's every square inch of the wall has some kind of like you said, like mid century, just like abstract decor like there's like there's so much on the table and on the counters and just like all of this like property and like all of the stuff that's just adorning their house it's like you know we can't have a single square inch that leaves it up to like people's imagination like we have to telegraph everything and Mm. so much of that decor is very like 70s to me and I'm not like an expert on that but it just feels like you know like what was in my grandparents house like growing up and then so much of the costuming is that like 1950s, like even her, like she says, like, I go to like, I go to church on Sundays, like I'm a Christian, but it's like, you know, when her parents are driving her um, to like the camp at the beginning, it's like that dress she's wearing is like so 1950s and she's wearing like, like a, like a knit sleeping cap to bed, like a knit <laughs> yes. hair net to bed mm-hmm. and like a floor length nightgown. And like, you know, it is just that thing of like, it is so clearly like, like you said, like this space that just doesn't even exist anymore, but like that they're desperately clinging on to. And I think that, um, that and the camp is almost the flip side to the bar and the, mm-hmm. the home mm-hmm. where Larry and Lloyd run. Yep. Yes. Because the thing about those spaces is they don't look nice. Like they don't look good, but they look real. Yes. And the thing that like always strikes me about the scenes in Larry and Lloyd's house is it is still very like quote unquote constructed in terms of like there's rainbows everywhere. Like there's all of this, like there's all of this like supportive iconography on the walls. Like it is just as like man made as like the camp. But the thing with it is, is it's, you know, that these two guys are decorating this place for the people that are in it. And like, you can see that, like you can see that somebody just took a paint roller and painted that rainbow on the wall, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the camp where everything is so meticulously like matching and everything you can tell, like it gives you that vibe of just like, well, somebody wanted a rainbow there. So like they got a bunch of paint and they put a rainbow there as opposed to like the camp and the home in the beginning where it's just like, no, everything has to be like so perfectly, like meticulously placed to a T. Otherwise, like people are going to know something. The camp too has that sort of plasticine quality that we're talking about that, that artificiality that to me feels like one of those advertisements from the 1950s where the woman is in a yellow dress and she's in yellow gloves and the floor is yellow and she's using mop and glow and like everything's (laughs) yellow. Right. And like that, that too, I think also ties back to this idea that you, you nodded to, which is that this gender binary that um, is being asserted is a a consumerist construction it is 
in service of capital, yes, but it is also um, the thing that drives our consumer machine in this country. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like, I love that the the camp itself feels like a product of that, right? Like it feels like an advertisement. It feels like it's trying to sell you something. If you didn't see like RuPaul's van and the Melissa Etheridge poster, if you showed it to somebody and be like, when did this take place? They'd be like 1950 or like 1965. Like there's no way for you to know other than those two things. It's like, okay, that's a van from the nineties. And like, this girl likes Melissa Etheridge. So there's a Melissa Etheridge poster (laughs) in like two shots in the beginning Otherwise, it is so absurdly constructed to look like those 50s and specifically those 50s advertisements you're talking about. So, yes, yes, 110%. And I realized that when we finished swimming lessons, we would change in front of each other. And that's it. Why I'm a homo. Andre, that's what kids do after swimming lessons. Change. Everybody does that. But I I took one look at those boys and I got a, you know what? (coughs) I um, can relate to that. Um, When I used to study with Jacob, we used to touch each other's legs and rub up against each other. Blowing each other after your fucking bar mitzvah is a little bit different than learning how to dog paddle. That is totally uncalled for. Well, excuse me, but but we're paying a lot of money here to get these kids fixed, not sit around and listen to stories all day. I, I, I've heard enough of this crap. When you get back from Switzerland, you better have this gay thing out of your system. Got it? I got it. Fuck up. No college, no car, no trust fund. I like that we uh, have already talked about the, uh, the house that Larry and Lloyd own. Mm. Um, this has one of my favorite moments in in the film, and I think it's like a very transformational moment for Megan, for Natasha Leone's character as well, when she has finally fled uh, the the camp and and is living there and and sees that Dante Basco's character is there and is being well taken care of by this this older gay couple. She emphasizes that she still has this sort of conceit about prescriptions of sexuality and gender and go so far as to just ask Lloyd and says, until I'm on my own, I need you to teach me how to be gay. Right. Right. And, and Lloyd says, there's no, I can't do that. There's no way to be gay. You know, like, like you just get to be whoever you are. And it's just like this fascinating moment where you realize that the gender constructs, the, the heteronormativity, like all of this stuff that's been just like pounded into her, in her, her, actual like home life and then in the camp as well has sort of bled into her conception of what's possible uh embracing her queer identity until she's finally like up against it and realizes oh that isn't the way it has to be i get to just define myself as whatever it is i want and whatever feels right to me and i think it's a really it's a it's a really great uh cool moment yeah a hundred percent and it's this thing where it is how do i put this like you're 100% right in that like it is very revealing about like how like heteronormativity is constructed because it's like well there's clearly a right way to do that yes um and it's and like it's that opposite counterpoint which is there are so many stereotypes of like well this is what gay people do and, like gay people do this and gay people mm-hmm. do that and like 
it's a question that I found myself contemplating a lot when it comes to like specifically like LGBT art. It's like you can watch a lot of like, you know, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of movies in my life. And I feel like I can always to some degree, I can be like, like, I'll be watching a film and I'm like, I don't know if a woman wrote this or I don't know if a woman directed this or like, I don't know if like it's created by a gay person, but I'm like, I'm like, this is different. Mm -hmm. And it's like that thing that you think about where it's like, it's not even that like, there's a, there's a right way to do straightness, probably pretty certainly, um, or at least that's what they would have you believe. But it's like, there's not really that right way to do like queerness because queerness really is, especially in like a younger worldview, like for this character who's like, well, will you teach me how to be a lesbian? It's like, if there's a right way to do queerness or straightness, then there has to be a right way to do queerness. And it's mm-hmm. just like, it's like, no, it's just not being straight. It's yes. like, they want to tell you that like, there's a stereotype, you know, they want to tell you that like, you have to watch drag race or like that you have to, you know, go to clubs and say, yes, queen or whatever. Like there's, there's yeah. all these stereotypes, but it's just like, it's just like, if you're just not straight, like you can be gay and like, that's cool kid. And I don't know, like it's, it's something that um, is a question a lot with like LGBT art and just like, just like, well, what is it? And it's just like, it's kind of just like, there's maybe not quite enough of it to be like, this is how it operates, but it's just kind of like, so frequently you can just be watching something or you can just be listening to something and you can just be like this person, like this person's using metaphors in this song, but like, this song is gay. And then you like Google it and you're like, yep, they're gay. Like I got it. It's a, it's an interesting thing too, that again, if we're coming back to this sort of materialist uh, read of the film, I, I also really appreciate that moment um, when we're, we're thinking about the, the political churn that uh, heteronormativity drives, right. That like, there has to be scriptures so that the equation writes itself and can perpetuate. And definitely when there isn't, when there are variables or when there isn't a discrete answer, um, then like the system breaks down. And that's kind of what you're talking about that. Like there isn't also like an X for this thing. It's just not that X, right? It's just not that. And that is more disruptive to the system than just having another box, right? That 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 uh, that queerness could fall into. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent. So I have a, a question. I think to to the the entire panel, but but to you, Caroline, as well, about something that you mentioned earlier. You know, the the idea of uh, whether or not straight actors should portray queer characters. Um, knowing that Natasha Leone herself, I think, identifies as, as straight. I think Clea Duvall is now uh, in an out queer person, identifies as a lesbian. But at the time that she made this movie, she wasn't yet. That, you know, she she kind of came out later in life and has since, you know, really embraced that and uh, made, uh, I think, a, a, a queer love story, like a romantic comedy that was really well received and kind of this more sort of optimistic, positive, sort of like queer joy kind of film. Um, but when both of them are making this movie, their intimacy is certainly there on screen, likely because of this uh, this friendship that had developed between them. But how do you feel about their, their portrayals, knowing that one of them at the time was a, a, a closeted gay woman and the other one was straight? 
I mean, that's a very good question. I will say that it, it reads very real. Like it very much like it doesn't feel fake. It doesn't feel forced. And I think a big part of that is just that like from square one, like that conceptualization of this film um, is genuinely very, very queer. Like mm-hmm. there's a not even a lot of, like there are several films about gay men, but like we really don't get that experience for women. And so like, I think the fact that that um, that's kind of the conceptualization of this film lends it that credibility kind of like that we were talking about earlier, but I don't know. I mean, I personally, I think that the thing with Clea Duvall is a very important counterpoint to that question of like, well, who should play what? Because the other thing is too, is that like, you don't always know like how people identify and who people are. And it does become like in, in a way that like seeks to help queer people and seeks to like give access to queer people. It can actually in some ways be just as, just as much of a gatekeep to be like, well, before you can do X, like you need to identify as X. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's a thing that, a lot of folks um, have talked about online and um, I don't know if, if either of you are familiar with um, the band against me and their lead singer, Laura Jane Grace. Um, Very much so. I've been a big fan for most of my life. (laughs) Before she put out, um, if you've read her book before she put out like the record transgender dysphoria blues, like she had written this entire record with like none of her bandmates knowing. And like for all intents and purposes, it is that thing where like probably wouldn't have, like looked great if she had not come out before putting out this record, because it is very, very queer and like speaks with a lot of authority on that issue. But she talks about in her book that there is this, um, there was this moment where it's like, she started playing the songs for her bandmates and they're like, they're like, we cannot record that. Like what, like, are you insane? Like we cannot, like we're not gay. Like we can't put this out there. And like that, made her come out to her band which like she probably would have had to do eventually but that's just like an example of like this phenomenon where it's just like if if people are so hard and fast about like you have to be queer in x sort of way in order to do y um then like it does almost reverse gatekeep in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and like similarly i had a thing recently where like my girlfriend posted something I said on TikTok and it went like semi-viral and I got a bunch of people in the comments being like, um, you shouldn't say that unless you're like X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I am X, Y, and Z. And just cause you don't know <laughs> that, like, like, and so like, I kind of like snarkily followed up to a bunch of them and I was just like, Oh, don't worry. I am. But thanks for making me out myself publicly on like TikTok guys. Like, thanks nice. for that. <laughs> yeah. um, I have to prove your bona fides. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know, like, I guess, the Clea Duval of it all is a good counterpoint to just like, well, we should go about these things ethically and we should go about these things in ways that do seek to like validate the communities. Like if you are too hard or fast with certain rules about who can and can't, you can end up inadvertently like derailing your entire goal. You will all be graded in each category. And those of you who pass will move on to step five, simulated sexual lifestyle. 
and those of you who fail will be sent home. One thing that I do uh, find about this movie is that I feel like in the conversion camp, it sort of downplays some of the more uh, outright religious elements of these kinds of institutions. Um, it's hinted at a little bit, you know, like uh, Megan's family is like a, a pretty conservative Christian family. They pray around the table. There's a funny joke kind of made about, you know, uh, righteousness and and purity and all of that. But in the camp itself, there's, I think, maybe like a, a little bit of an erasure if, or, or just at least a, a downplaying of a lot of what drives these kinds of camps, which is like the evangelical right and, and anti-queer agendas within Christianity. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Caroline. That's an interesting, a very interesting point that I hadn't really considered. I think you're right. You're, you're what I know you're right when you're talking about how like, (laughs) particularly like the right wing fundamentalists, like evangelical Christian is a lot of what fuels like homophobia and like queerphobia in this country. Like, I know you are right on that point. Um, It is important that they leave it in there that like her family is very Christian and that's the reason for sending her here. And, you know, um, Kathy Moriarty semi frequently talks about like God's path for you. And like, Mm -hmm. they do make a point to kind of like single out the Jewish kid a little bit, which I think is them (laughs) acknowledging that. But I think as well, I think it's important that they don't make it solely about that because that lets a lot of people in this country off the hook. Yeah. That's um, true. Cause that's a thing that like, you know, that's a narrative that um, a lot of people kind of perpetuate is that just like, well, it's only crazy people. You know what I mean? Like it's only like the super insane, crazy Jesus freaks who have a problem with the gays anymore. And it's like, they might be the only one going to like, an event with a sign that says God hates fags, but like mm-hmm. they're not the only ones who are like, you know, they're not the only ones who are passing up trans people for promotions or yep. like, you know, like, um, yep. you know, not letting, you know, queer people like, like, you know, queer nonprofits take up as much space in like local sectors. You know what I mean? They are, while that is a lot of the, openly outwardly flagrant bigotry it does come from the christian right like a lot of the stuff that goes on in this movie just generally comes from like just kind of like white polite america yes yeah and i think that it's i think you're right it, it requires a, a much broader target especially in late 90s america um as you know these sentiments as you said weren't just ones held by the crazies like this was a sort of pervasive philosophy that was guiding sort of modern neoliberalism and the sort of end of history period that the, you know, nuclear heterosexual family was the ideal version of Americanness and, and of society proper. Yeah. And I mean, and I think it's important too, because like, I mean, in America, like when Obama was elected the first time, like over 50% of Americans still didn't support gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Obama like, didn't support gay marriage when he was. Exactly. Know, exactly. <laughs> like, like in, in during that election, like it was not even safe for somebody to say like, yeah, like gay people should be allowed to get married. And like, I remember growing up, like having the most, like the most actually like homophobic adults in my life. And they would just be like, 
particularly men who weren't particularly religious, but like the going thing that I recall from being a kid is like, well, I have no problem with gay people. I just don't think they should be allowed to get married. And if they hit on me in public, I'm going to hit them. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it's like, it is that thing where it's like, there was so much hiding behind like politeness and like cordiality where Mm -hmm. like people would be like, no, 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 I have nothing against the gays. It's just, I just don't think they should act that way in public. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I think that focusing mostly on just like nice, polite, otherwise respectable white people is being a little more true to life than just, but you are right in that. I do think most of these centers in real life are outwardly Christian, but I do like that they don't focus it on that. I think the way that the one scene in particular that focuses on Adam and Eve explicitly um, is kind of there to show in my mind, if we're, if we're, you know, pulling this thread further is kind of there to show like, not like, Oh, the people that believe this are evangelical Christians, but that like this idea of like, western religion and and christianity specifically like this is the thing that upholds capitalism this is the thing that like upholds this system we're all running on um and it's not explicitly evangelical but it does point to the fact that this this church is not separated from the state and that oftentimes the ways that we are socialized to believe a certain thing about a a marginalized group of people comes from, you know, ideas that exist first and foremost in the Bible or often don't, but like are are assumed to be right. And that's not necessarily because the people that believe them, like go to church every Sunday and, and like, you know, um, and practice uh, all of these things like, in an orthodox way it's that this pervades so many aspects of our society often in ways we aren't even necessarily aware of yeah no and and i love your point of like even if it's not in the bible it's like kind of like what we're told is you know what i mean and it's it's that thing of like so much of american just straight down the middle like quote unquote average american is it's like it's it very much as a chicken and the egg is it's like is it this way because we're like a Protestant evangelical country or is Protestant evangelicalism like this because these are the people who are like using it as a, as a, you know, whatever you call it. They're the ones who are using this as justification for why society is like that. And it doesn't really matter. It's like, like the Christians uphold like polite white society and polite white society upholds Christianity and they both blame the other for like why they act this way. So it's like, (laughs) It's like, it's like, is it the chicken or the egg? I don't know, but it's both, you know? So it is is both of these things going at it, like using the other one as justification to do what they were probably already going to do anyway. Yes. A thousand percent that. That Adam and Eve scene, the like sex simulation scene is so good, by the way, just because it (laughs) demonstrates the thing that we all know to be true, which is that like homophobes are the people most preoccupied and weirdly obsessed with like the physical act of sex in any moment. Like that they're, that they're always just like thinking about like genitals bumping up against one another all the time. And, and like to the point where it's so absurd, there's a, a woman, you know, an adult woman 
narrating with like a microphone into a megaphone into a megaphone like to and her like, own son in one of these scenarios her own son like like two minors like pumping at when like thrusting into one another it's it's so so insane and and bizarre yes. um but it, it it demonstrates a very very thoughtful point um and is also revealing i think of again of of kathy moriarty's character she has this moment where she says that foreplay is for sissies and that real men yes. just kind of like like yes. uh like pump you know load and and run or something like that and you realize how much of it is projection and like cope on her behalf because yes, she is a exactly. single mother like exactly. it's, it's her it's her way of reasoning and rationalizing why she's raising a child alone is that real men uh do that right they 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 knock you up and then abandon you uh, <laughs> yeah well, and, yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's like, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum because I'm sure there, I'm sure there are women out there who are like, fuck foreplay. Like, let, let's just jump into it. And I'm sure <laughs> that there are men out there. There are some men out there who are like, no, like foreplay is like a super important, like part of like the whole thing. But just like, generally speaking, the stereotype is that like, generally speaking women like foreplay more than men. And generally speaking, men are just want to do exactly that. So it's very telling like you said that kathy moriarty is literally yelling at her son like here's how you should have sex and like here's how i would do it and it's a very like patriarchal very like male-centered worldview on how to do it even though it's his mother telling him this and she's like well this is how i do it and it's like but why like is it it it's that thing of just like are you doing that because that's how you do it? Or is that, are you doing it because that's how you're told to do it? Yes, <laughs> totally. And yeah. again, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. Anybody who's out there, whatever your, uh, whatever your opinion on foreplay is, it's valid. <laughs> as long as you and your consenting partners are in the same boat, go with God. Well said. <laughs> if, well you're, said. if your flavor is just traditional missionary, no foreplay, lights off, eyes closed, like. <laughs> Pump and run. So be it. That is fine. I will say I really appreciated back to this notion of like the counter that Lloyd and his partner offer, not necessarily being prescriptive of like, here's the right way to be gay, but just we're not this other thing. They have an argument um, in front of Megan when she first gets there and they um, are very vocal in how they're feeling. They're telling each other like what's going on. Uh, and they quickly sort of like assess the situation, express their feelings, apologize and reconcile. And it is like a beautiful moment and incredibly healthy um, and definitely like coded as like theirs. Like they have things that they say where like w- one of the um, the taller guy who I think is named Barry is like Larry 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 Bear oh that's right he's like Larry Bear sorry and then like <laughs> Lloyd says something similar and you can tell like this is their language this is their these are their terms of endearment this is this is theirs specifically and it's a, it's as you say Caroline it's one of those like two second things and it's a tiny detail but it says so much it tells us like these people have a healthy relationship first and foremost. Uh, and all of the heterosexual characters in this movie do not. Um, and two, this is their version 
of a healthy relationship. It's not right. the right way to be for everyone, but it works for them. And it then, you know, is reinforced by this line that Lloyd has later when he's telling Megan there's no right way to be, just like be yourself. Um, I just loved it. And and I thought it was a really beautiful flourish and a nice sort of skewering of um, a lot of the kind of like brokenness that exists in nuclear family families that are desperately clinging to an idea that doesn't work. Yeah, no, 100%. And I want to add to that too, that a thing that I respect so much about that scene, and I've now seen this movie several times, and I still can't put my finger on exactly how they do it. But they do that scene, and they're not the butt of the joke. And it is very much like, we've gone this entire movie, like without seeing two people actually communicating, like, yes, like two adults actually communicating and like to see it like, it is very much like that relief, like that counterpoint to what they're teaching at like um, True Directions or whatever. But also one thing they do is it's also very funny. Yeah. You know, yes. It's a very funny moment. And it's like, you can't help but laugh because it is like, yeah, it's a little over the top. And like, yeah, they are playing it very like broadly and like almost comedically. And it's somehow both very, very sweet and very, very truthful and very, very honest. And also just like, a pretty funny little bit of comedy, which like you just have to have so much respect for because so frequently, especially too, when like it's about like marginalized people, like a lot of times you have to be, maybe you don't have to be, but a lot of times people choose to be very, very like serious and very morose and very just like, like here is my point with it. Um, Or if they do make it funny, it's like they are the butt of the joke And kind of like how we were talking earlier about how the kids at this camp are not the butt of the joke. Like the camp itself is. I don't even know what the butt of the joke is there other than just like two actors being generally pretty comedic with their delivery and like just their reactions. But like it is this really fun moment of like on the one hand, it's one of the funnier moments in the film. And on the other hand, it's the only time two adults look each other in the eye and actually talk. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. At the risk of going down a rabbit hole here, I have one more thing to to discuss. Please. Uh, which is this film's place within the camp canon. Uh, you know, Carly and I were having a conversation about it. And I, I personally, I think, hold a position that the term camp is often overused. Uh, and that and that the, the idea of camp has kind of been bastardized to mean anything that somebody might have some level of apprehension or reticence around canonizing as good, you know, sometimes sometimes people like having like a reluctance to say like, I enjoy this thing earnestly. So I enjoy it as camp instead. Um, And while this film definitely has like aesthetics that, uh, you know, resonate, I think with a lot of other queer art specifically, you know, from, from Babbitt's mouth uh, herself, with with stuff like john waters yeah um she's also been very specific in saying like i'm too earnest and i want to make a movie that is too like genuinely romantic to feel like i'm i'm living in the shadow of or carrying on the legacy of a john waters type Mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you agree with that caroline but but to me i don't think that this film reads as camp at all i think it is too earnest for that. I think that is a little bit too sincere and actually is just a a, a good movie. It's not so bad. It's good. No, I agree. And at risk of going down a rabbit hole, you (laughs) you bring up several (laughs) really good points there in that one that like 
one of the things I kept thinking about, like while watching this is like how it was so like panned in its time, which is so weird to me because like visually just looking at it, you're like, this is clearly riffing on and like inspired by John Waters. Like this isn't like Mm -hmm. this woman came out of nowhere with this fully like fully formed aesthetic that no one had ever done. And these people, you know, that the reviewers didn't know what they were looking at. It's like, it's so clearly like, it looks just like in so many ways, a John Waters film. Um, So it's like the John Waters comparison is important. And I think the reason why a lot of the, reception at the time was negative is that earnestness you're talking about but specifically that like in a lot of ways this film is pretty cheesy and like there is a lot of like things that some people would mistake as camp but I think the distinction with this and I've been thinking about this like for the last 24 hours since I watched it and I think (laughs) what I kind of the conclusion that I am at least circling is that I think a lot of the things that are read as camp and are read as cheesy and are read as like silly and quote unquote, like poorly done or like, you know, or too broad is true directions as a concept is cheesy and broad and like cannot exist without a hyperbolically broad sense of just like, you know, that construction we're talking about. And it's like, the things that these people are doing is cheesy. The things that these people are forcing upon these kids is like broad and not fully like conceived of. And I think a lot of people mistake that for the movie being that way. They can't conceptualize that Jamie Babbitt can shoot these like very like intimate, earnest, honest scenes with these kids and then have these like, sets that are so ridiculously designed they think Mm -hmm. oh well I guess the set is just bad or like I guess like these like these characters like these actors are bad because like these elements are cheesy like the scene where RuPaul is like teaching them how to like you know do a car like (laughs) can you tell I'm gay (laughs) do a car how do they do a car (laughs) I mean that Um, is what they do they are doing a car they do euphemize it yes (laughs) I was gonna say there's a lot of doing of the car so you're not wrong Caroline (laughs) right right but it's a thing of like I think critics at the time like look at that and think well that is like a you know oh, they're all put together in this blue and like he's clearly doing like cheesy bad stuff. And it's like, I think that that gets confused for the film being inept versus the film trying to show that these inept people doing this ridiculously broad thing. Yes. If that makes sense. A thousand percent makes sense. Okay, great. And I think you nailed it because we've just spent the last like, hour and a half plus talking about all the ways this movie is really thoughtful and like and very assured in its hand and its commentary and like it's a complete misread to think that some of the aesthetic and more hyperbolic trappings of the film aren't also part of that thoughtfulness right like they are in service of the commentary and um and just as considered 
as the more overtly earnest moments. And that is like a, a brilliance about her filmmaking here that um, she could make a set or like a, a, a throwaway line or something that feels, you know, wacky and hyperbolic and strange and, and maybe empty and have it contain so much, but have audiences perhaps miss that, which I think is also like, you know, um, mirrors a lot of the, a lot of the um, perspective of uh, white heteronormative communities in general, right? Just sort of like misattributing things uh, as they see fit. I think a good microcosm of this is the cheer at the end. It is so absurdly corny for a 17 year old to be like, I need to change the world. I'm going to do it with my cheer that I wrote about my (laughs) girlfriend and the cheer isn't particularly good. No, No. she's not a particularly good cheerleader. (laughs) But every time I watch that scene, I just like, I do get these chills because it, because Natasha Lyonne is playing it so earnestly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And like whether Natasha Lyonne is a bad cheerleader and that's what makes Megan a bad cheerleader or whether Natasha Lyonne could be a bang up cheerleader if she wanted, but she's decided that Megan's a bad cheerleader. It doesn't matter. It's like watching this person so honestly, like to the best way she can honestly bear herself after she's gone through two hours of her very forcefully, like not doing that. It like, Mm. it gives me chills. And I laugh at that when I'm watching it in the movie because I'm like, Oh my God, like it's so funny that like this, you know, this, 17 year old girl is going to go out and do this in front of all of these people. But like, it's also just so sweet and it just like, it breaks my little heart. Um, And it's, it's this tricky business because another problem when talking about like queer art, and I've seen this to other marginalized communities talking about this, but like, I'm not part of those communities. So I won't say that. Like, I won't say my thoughts on that, but like, I've just seen this around as like questions of representation before, of just like, do films about like marginalized communities need to be like social justice pieces? You know what I mean? Like, do they specifically need to do that? Um, Because like, on the one hand, like, kind of what we were talking about earlier is like, it's not a problem if there's like, a few satires or a few trauma stories, but it's when they're all that. And so like, a thing I think works so well to that end in this movie is that because there aren't a lot of stories about queer relationships, the two girls get to have the stereotypical ending at the end where it's like, and then I like, you know, I give up everything to be with the person I love because I'm in a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. And it's really sweet in this movie in a way it isn't always in straight, like in movies about straight couples because I'll see movies about straight couples and like, generally speaking it's the woman who gives everything up for a man it isn't always but generally speaking it is and i a lot of times i'm just like i'm just like i'm just like girlfriend like you guys aren't like you guys are gonna break up in a year like like don't get like don't give up all your stuff like please (laughs) like don't like like see if you can work it out sure but like don't give up everything for this relationship (laughs) like that's so silly but the thing that like really works in this movie that like i don't even necessarily know how you would do this in a straight 
story, but like, it's really nice that this gets to be both a very personal thing and also kind of a social justice thing too, without being one over the other is in a story like this. It's really sweet that Graham choosing to go with her in the end is not just Graham choosing Megan and Megan choosing Graham. It's also like each of them choosing themselves. Whether they go off and get married, it doesn't say. Whether they are two teenagers who date for six weeks and say like, ew, this is gross and break up. At the end of the day, them choosing each other at the end is also a victory. It's primarily, not even also, is primarily a victory for them as individuals because like doing that means that they have already grown so much. And whether Graham throws away her trust fund and doesn't uh like end up with Megan forever it's still great that it's like but she was able to get out of that situation and she chose herself so yes I just wanted to leave it there um which is a proper place in my opinion because it's the very end of the (laughs) film but that's a beautiful beautiful point yeah I love that and I think it it is a a pitch perfect place to close up this episode uh, on But I'm a Cheerleader. Caroline Thompson, thank you so very much for hanging out with us and bringing us this beautiful, beautiful movie. Thank you guys both so much for having me. Um, This is a film I love. And also having listened to your guys' show for a while, I was just like, I'm so excited to be talking about people who are or like talking with people who are also just like so left leaning. And it's like, let's make this shit political. Cause like, <laughs> obviously this film is political and obviously all art is political as we all know, but yes. like very excited to have this conversation. And um, yeah, just thank you guys so much for having me. Um, for those listening in at home, please, please, please listen to how have you not seen? It's a great show. It's a lot of fun. Um, please support them and we will make sure to link to your program, Caroline and, and your Patreon and all those things um, in our, in our episode description. But where can, where can people find you, Caroline? Um, yeah. I mean, mostly on Twitter. I mean, <laughs> most of my free time is spent just yelling about movies on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you can find, you can find the podcast. Um, we are at H H Y N S. That's how have you not seen um, at H H Y N S pod on Twitter. And then you can find myself. I am at Scareline. So S C A R E like scare, like ah, underscore O line. O-L-I-N-E. It's a lot funnier in print. It's a lot harder to uh, <laughs> it's a lot harder to pitch that verbally, but if you go to the podcast page, like I'm linked in the description. So awesome. fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and of course you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for uh, bonus episodes, one every other week for just five dollars a month. Uh, shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>